This is Guns and Butter. The banks are in control of the economy, and they've got the most expensive lobbyists. They can afford the lobbyists. The lobbyists are always talking to the politicians. And in fact, they have that revolving door where, um, for example, Henry Paulson himself had been CEO of Goldman Sachs. So they move into government long enough to change the rules, and then they move back into their private industry. So we, we can't really fight Wall Street, it seems to me. But what we could do is we can still have some impact on our local governments. And that's where I think we need to have a grassroots movement to get our local governments to act. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Public Banking Antidote. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and president and chairman of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System, and How We Can Break Free. In Web of Debt, she analyzes the Federal Reserve and the Money Trust. Ellen Brown's new book is From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution, and was written after the 2008 financial crisis. In this latest volume, she looks at banking models historically, going back 5,000 years, and globally for models that work, and proposes solutions to the current system. Today we discuss the looming danger in our current banking system, the Financial Stability Board, securitization, lack of credit, the money markets, the MERS system, bail-ins, the 2005 bankruptcy law, Dodd-Frank, compound interest, banking in other countries, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and solutions to the banking crisis. Ellen Brown, welcome. Oh, thank you. Would you say that your new book, Escaping the Web of Debt, The Public Bank Solution, takes off from where the web of debt, the shocking truth about our money system and how we can break free, left off? How would you characterize your new book? It does. Well, um, the Web of Debt was written before the 2008 crisis, and it was sort of predicting that, but it was all about how we have lost the power to um, either create our own money or to create our own credit, and so we've lost control over credit, and it was sort of a history of how that all happened. And then we had the 2008 crisis, among other things. I mean, that whole global system, or at least half the globe, has been affected, and you've got the problems going on in Europe, where they're particularly in austerity, but we're in austerity, too. I mean, our municipal governments, et cetera, are broke, and it's all because of this this same credit crisis. So so it's time for a solution. I mean, now we actually have a serious problem. Before, I was just sort of writing historically about a problem that was about to happen. Uh, So now it's happened. So now the question is what to do about it. And um, in order to get back control of creating our own money and, more importantly, creating our own credit, which is really what money is, it's really just debits and credits, uh, turning your own promise to pay into money, basically, in order to get that back into our communities where local businesses can't get credit now or can't get it on good terms. And they're the ones that hire people, and, you know, that's really where the the heart of the economy is the big banks can make a lot more money lending a billion dollars to a hedge fund than they can lending 
$5,000 to a little startup business. So they, of course, lend to the hedge funds, and they have control over where their credit goes. So so what I did in this second book, The Public Bank Solution, was to look around the world at all the models for banking and which models worked. And the ones that do work are the ones where the, the bank is owned by the people or owned by the government, owned by the community. Uh, particularly, for example, in Germany, they have a very strong um, local public banking sector, and those public banks are required to service their local businesses. They don't have the option of just um, lending to hedge funds and ignoring what's going on in their community, and they're owned by the government, so of course their mandate is to serve the government. We have one such bank, and that's the Bank of North Dakota. It's owned by North Dakota, the state of North Dakota. It was set up in 1919 um, when they were in a crisis like we're in now, where the farmers were losing their farms to the Wall Street bankers, and they decided they just wanted to keep their money in the state and use it for their own purposes rather than sort of giving away that leverage power and then being subject to whatever Wall Street wanted to dictate to them. But that's only one state or one bank, and people would say, well, they've got oil, or, you know, there were different reasons why that's not sufficient to make your case. So what I've done in this second book is to look at models historically, actually going back 5,000 years, and uh, globally, and what the result is, of course, is that where they have a strong public banking sector, the economy works much better. You write that Section 1 of your new book looks at the train wreck looming in our current banking system. How would you characterize the looming danger? Well, most people didn't even realize there was, well, I shouldn't say that. It depends on what you what you were busy reading. But anyway, in 2008, it all collapsed, and that was, that was quite surprising. And suddenly, we were asked by the banks to bail them out, which was unheard of. I mean... Supposedly, the banks are there for our security. We're putting our money in the bank because we think that's the safe thing to do. Well, it turned out they're not safe at all, and they're asking us to support them. And now, just five years later, five years later, um, they actually have these bail-in schemes, which is quite alarming that um, we have the case of Cyprus, where that was the first alarm bell that went off, where we saw that they actually confiscated the depositors' funds on the theory that they had to recapitalize themselves. In other words, well, actually in Cyprus it was like a tax, but when they have these bail-in policies, it turns out, I just wrote about that recently, that um, all over the world that emanated from the Financial Stability Board, which was itself a product of the 2008 collapse and bailout, that we we all signed on to this Financial Stability Board and allowed them to regulate us. And they have this new plan where if you have a bank that's considered too big to fail, instead of letting it fail, which is the obvious thing to do, or taking it over, nationalizing it, which is even better thing to do, they, in these plans that everybody has adopted, um, they are to go after the creditors. They're not real specific about that, but the creditors are the depositors. That's another thing most people don't know is that when you put your money in the bank, it is no longer your money. It's their money, and they can do with it as they will. But the only thing you've got is an IOU. So 
so the, the deal is they're supposed to give it back to you on demand, and that's why it's called a demand deposit. But it's not like people think where it's often a little box with their name on it, and when they go and pull it out, then, you know, it's theirs. And in a case like Cyprus, they would say, well, that's theft. They took my money. But not really. What they did was they took your money the day you put it in there, and all they did was go bankrupt, and they said, sorry, we don't have it come back later or stand in line with all the others. So these are all things that we're only now becoming aware of because of the crisis point that we've reached. It's a tipping point, really. So this is a time when we could actually do something about it. And that's historically when new things happen, it's when you hit these crisis points. So that's why we're really pushing with the Public Banking Institute to try to set up a new system that's safe, that's publicly owned. We can't really fight Wall Street, but what we could do is just set up another system and just move into it. Sort of a move your money idea, but not just move it individually into a small local bank, but move it into our own banks that are big, that have the same sort of power that a Wall Street bank would have. Ellen, you just mentioned the Financial Stability Board. Could you say a few more words about that? Was that created in the U.S. or in Europe? Uh, that was created in Basel. That is, I've traced all this history through this book. Uh, so it really started with the Bank of England, or the City of London, which had lost control of their colonies in the 19th century. But that was all right, as long as they had financial control. The deal was you were supposed to borrow from the Bank of England, which Australia and everybody else did. And then the Commonwealth Bank of Australia got set up. It was a public bank, and they got the bright idea that they could just issue the credit themselves, and they wouldn't need to borrow from the Bank of England. Well, that was such an alarming thing that the Bank of England then got all over them and set up this whole central banking system that was global. And so originally it was the the British colonies under England, but but then it moved to uh, Basel, and it became... Well, after World War One, England sort of lost its financial power, and it couldn't really support being the sole leader of this whole banking empire. So uh, it was England, France, Germany, and um, the U.S. that formed formed the original Bank for International Settlements. And then that has now grown to 60 countries. And so there was a financial stability forum, which was just guidelines, and that came out of the Asian crisis of 1998. But the forum became the Financial Stability Board, which is actually rules that we all agreed to abide by. So that was much more strict. And when they set it up, I actually wrote about it in 2009 when it was first set up. It was quite alarming. They didn't they didn't really say what they were going to regulate. Everybody just said they would agree to abide by its rules. So now we see what they're talking about, and the rules are quite draconian, or quite potentially. I mean, we haven't seen the axe fall yet, but the axe is there, sort of poised. Could you explain the securitization of collateral for loans and how this led to fraudulent securities and a housing bubble? Um, securitization also actually came out of the Basel Accords. Before 1988, banks did not have to hold a certain amount of capital. There was no capital requirement. But after that, you had a 10% capital requirement. I think it was 8% to start. So now it's 10%. So let's say you had 
you would have to have $100 of your own money, you the bank, in order to back $1,000 in loans. So so the banks were losing their market share. They would make the $1,000 in loans to some homeowner who would have the the mortgage for 30 years, and you'd have to wait for 30 years till the thing got paid off before you could make another loan. So to get around that, they started selling their loans off. So they sold them to mortgage companies and to groups of investors that didn't really want to buy a whole mortgage, but what they wanted was this fungible security. That's why you had all this AAA and the collateralized debt obligations and the derivatives. All these things were supposedly designed to make each one of those little units the same. Like all the AAAs are supposed to be the same, just like money. But it wasn't, obviously. And the whole thing collapsed because they were selling off this very subprime mortgages and putting them in these packages that they called AAA because some of the mortgages were going to be good. And so they figured that the the AAA people would get the good mortgages and the and the triple Bs would get the ones that defaulted first. That was their structure. But it was just a totally faulty model, and the faulty model collapsed eventually. But the the need for it goes back to this global regulatory system that we have. You didn't used to have to do that. Back 100 years ago, they just did ordinary local banking, just like the Germans do today, ordinary local banking. Now, uh, these bonds, which you've been discussing, that have been uh, securitized, they turned out to be full of toxic financial instruments. How did this lead to the drying up of credit? Well, credit actually dried up because of the repo market, which is a bit complicated, but the repo market is another thing. The securitized mortgages were used as the pawns in this pawn shop that's called the repo market. So you had these large institutional investors like um, pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds, the hedge funds, big money. But if you look at like the pension funds, that's just us. So it's not really big money. It's a collection of little money. But they have more than $250,000 to keep in the bank. And the FDIC insurance only covers $250,000. So so these big investors want some place to put their money overnight where it will be secure. They want some security for their money. So they put them in these special purpose vehicles, as they call them. They're actually part of the big Wall Street banks, but they're a separate division. And those hold these bits of mortgages. So what you get, your pawn, is that you get these bits of mortgages overnight you give them the money and they give you the mortgages. So if for some reason the the bank goes bankrupt or the special purpose vehicle goes bankrupt, you've got the mortgages that you can go collect on and that's supposed to be your security. So that was the thing that froze up when, um, oh, well, that and the money market froze up when, it's getting a bit complicated, but the, the banks actually do the same thing. Overnight, they borrow from each other. In order to clear their checks, they have to have the same amount of checks coming in as going out. And if they don't, then they have to borrow from other banks or the money market or the or the repo market. So the, um, the money market dried up because Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Well, it's actually called breaking the buck. The, the dollar is supposed to always be a dollar in the money market, but it went below a dollar. So that freaked out. The money markets, and so they pulled their money out all at once. So there was this huge collapse all at once 
the money market money was gone. So the banks didn't have anything that they could use for their overnight borrowings to settle up their books, except at very high interest rates. So the interest rates went so high that it was more than they were getting on their loans. So they just quit lending. So that that's where the freeze was. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Public Banking Antidote. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, right. I remember that in September 2008, a run on the money market accounts. I mean, it, it could have eventually shut down the uh, global financial system, couldn't it have? Yeah, that's what they said. And that was that was the reason that it was supposed to be a, such a big deal and why we had to bail them out. But it just reflects a model of banking that we didn't even know or people didn't. It's not what people think banking is all about. People don't think that banks make their loans first. This is what they do. They actually make the loans to anybody that walks in the door that's a good credit risk, assuming they can meet the capital requirement. So they don't even worry about what kind of reserves they have. And then at the end of the day, they try to balance up their books. And if they don't balance, they borrow from somebody else because somebody in the whole banking system is going to have it because they just lost it. You know, the if the check went out, it went into some other bank, and they could borrow that back overnight for a bit of interest, a very, very small interest. So, so the whole thing is this great, it's actually based on a fraud, but it's a necessary fraud because that's the way our system is set up. So that's what I, after 400 pages, when I get to the end, the, the conclusion is we don't need this system. There's another way we could design this system where you don't have to have bits of mortgages to back loans if it's a public system. If you can borrow from, let's say everybody could borrow from the Federal Reserve, which is pretty much what Elizabeth Warren suggested, to give students a 0.75% interest rate, which is what the banks get. There's no reason that everybody couldn't borrow at these very cheap rates. Why is it that the banks can borrow for almost nothing? And then they get to control who the credit goes to, which would be fine if they were doing it fairly and actually giving it to creditworthy borrowers who needed it, but they don't. You have creditworthy small businesses that they just don't want to bother with because they can make a lot more money in the derivatives market or lending to hedge funds. So they are in control of where the credit goes, and they get the very cheap rates, and then they can charge us whatever whatever they want. I mean, you could say... They're competing with each other, but not really. There's only a handful of big banks that that control something like 60% of the market. And then the little ones, they're competing, but they're going under. They're being bought up by the by the big ones. So anyway, you could you could design a much healthier system. And the key to it all would be if it is owned by us and the profits go back to us. Ellen, before we leave the subject of the... Um the subprime and the mortgages, what role did the Mortgage Electronic Registration System, or MERS, play in fraudulent mortgage foreclosures? What is MERS? Well, it was set up because when they set up this whole securitization scheme, um, the buyers of the securities would change hands very quickly. So you had the situation where you would have a house that had many owners. And in fact, it might have multiple owners at the same time. In other words, different groups of investors were 
given that mortgage as collateral for their, well, for example, the triple A's, the triple B's, they're all given this piece of collateral along with a bunch of other collateral in a big sort of basket. So nobody really knows who owns what, and the owners are shifting around all the time. So you have recording laws, which require that every time you have a change of um, ownership in real property, you're supposed to go and record that, and that's how you prove title. So that was impossible if you have the securitization thing going on. So the mortgage electronic registration systems, it's just a database. It's just an electronic thing, and it was set up by a bunch of big banks and other financial sector players in order to get around this problem of the recording laws. Well, of course, first of all, they're cheating the counties out of a lot of money for not recording all these changes of of hand. So that's one reason the counties have an interest in straightening it out. But, But it also means that if you are a homeowner and let's say, say the bank that sold you this mortgage or, you know, did your mortgage representing that you thought they were the bank that was going to be having the mortgage all along, but it turns out they're not. They're going to sell it off to this group of investors. And say some representation was made to you, and suddenly they're foreclosing on your property, and and it wasn't what you were told or whatever. Anyway, if you have some issue with the lender or you want to do a workout, nobody knows who who the lender is. And so there's this um, curtain between between the parties and different courts have said that that curtain is too opaque and that it has broken the chain of title and therefore basically nobody owes the property because you can't trace the chain of title on it. So those are really dramatic cases when they came down, but they've kind of faded because of the the attorney general's settlement. But that's another issue. <laughs> You write that then-U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, former CEO of investment bank Goldman Sachs, told Congress that if the government did not bail out the banks, the entire global monetary system could collapse and that martial law might have to be imposed. What new scheme has the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland come up with for saving the too-big-to-fail banks? And I believe you've already touched a bit on this. Well, those are the bail-in policies that we were just now hearing about. I actually started writing about it because somebody had sent me something in December from New Zealand where they had this bail-in policy. And, you know, it hadn't happened yet, but it was just this sort of alarmist email and said, this is what they're doing, this is what's happening, they're going to do this all around the world. And so I just filed it away in my interesting material file. And sure enough, then then we had the Cyprus bail-in, which was where they they went after, supposedly it was called a haircut, where they were going to basically tax all the depositors, not just the ones that were uninsured, in other words, the ones with more than 100,000 euros, but even the, the ones under 100,000 euros, the ordinary people. And, uh, and then the people took to the streets and they said, absolutely not wasn't fair, et cetera. And the politicians, to their credit, didn't go along with it. And they said, we weren't going to impose this haircut. And it was the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission and the IMF that were requiring this in order for uh, Cyprus itself to get bailout money that they, they needed a loan. And one of the conditionalities, the deal was that they 
they could only get the loan if they did a haircut on the depositors of these two big bankrupt banks. So when they refused to do it the way the first proposal was, what they wound up with was um, a deal where it was only the uninsured depositors, so those were the depositors over 100,000 euros, but they took a huge chunk of their money, like 60% of their money. And these are these are depositors, like they may be uninsured because they've got more than the limit, but they're still like pension funds. These are ordinary people losing their pension funds or businesses, small businesses that need to keep a fair amount of cash around in order to, to meet their payroll and so forth. So it's crippling to the economy. And and why? The whole the whole premise here is that these banks must be maintained no matter what. That if they're undercapitalized, they have to get the capital somewhere. And so the new idea is they'll get the capital by turning their um, depositors' money into stock. That's the deal that we have. There is a um, a directive that came from the FDIC and the Bank of England jointly. You might wonder why they're working together at all, but they have this joint directive dated December of 2012 where the policy is that if you have a too-big-to-fail bank that fails, they're supposed to recapitalize themselves by turning their creditors' money into equity. So instead of having a deposit, you now have shares of stock in a bankrupt bank. So it's not going to do you a lot of good to try to pay your pay your rent with this these shares of stock, um, and that apparently that uh, emanated from a sort of blueprint that came down from the Financial Stability Board in 2011, and everybody was supposed to do it. And now they're popping up all over. We're seeing them in Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Um, the eurozone's working one out. And then ours with the with the Bank of England, FDIC Bank of England. So apparently they've all been told they should do it. So the Financial Stability Board, it's the G20 nations that signed on to it. Although I think there's actually 27 now. So that includes us. You know, we have pictures of um, President Obama uh, shaking hands with everybody because they'd made this deal, and now they were going to have this global regulation, and that was supposed to solve the problem. Well, it may have solved the problem for the banks, but it has not solved the problem for the people. Well, yes. Uh, you might ask what the FDIC is doing coming out with a directive with the Bank of England. Is there a question as to whether or not the FDIC fund will be adequate to the task of insuring deposits of up to $250,000? There's a huge question. There's only $25 billion in the fund. Now, when, I think they went $8 billion in the hole in uh, 2009, but Sheila Baer, who was the head of the Fed, said uh, not to worry that they had a credit line with the Treasury so they could borrow from the Treasury. But the fund is actually funded by the member banks. So even that, to, to recover the $8 billion, was a great stress on the small banks. So here's the problem. Now you have Dodd-Frank, the new regulations of the banks, that say that we, the taxpayers, are not going to be responsible if a big, too big to fail derivatives bank gets into trouble with their derivatives gambling. In other words, we're not going to underwrite their casino. And um, that would be, for example, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. They both have over $75 trillion in derivatives, 
and they both have over $1 trillion in deposits. And the problem is that the derivatives claims go first in bankruptcy. So if they were to go bankrupt, they're the claimants on these derivatives claims would all rush in and take all the collateral. They'd get the collateral first. Even before state and local governments, all those entities that think they have secured deposits, state and local governments are particularly relevant for us for public banking, um, they would be second in line to the derivatives claims, which which are the big casino players. But that's just the way the system's set up now. So if the derivatives players take all the money, then where is it? You've got a $25 billion fund, and let's say you have another, you need a $700 billion bailout, just like they did in the first one. Um, But the government this time says, no, it says right there in Dodd-Frank, we're not going to be responsible for this type of uh, collapse. You know, that's your problem. You'll have to work it out yourself, and then they will turn to these bail-in policies, and they will say, well, the FDIC and the Bank of England have directed us to take our creditors' money, in this case, and turn it into stock. And so it's all going to look legal because these blueprints are already set up and everybody's agreed to them. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Public Banking Antidote. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, exactly. And then, in addition to Dodd-Frank, there's the 2005 bankruptcy laws that make a, a derivatives counterparty senior to unsecured lenders, which is what you've been talking about. So now a depositor is now considered an unsecured lender? Uh, we're unsecured, but we're um, insured. So ordinary depositors are insured creditors. Yeah, what's interesting about that 2005 bankruptcy law was that they set it up. It was the big banks, you know, that got their way in this whole bankruptcy revision reform in 2005. One was that the students um, can't file for bankruptcy. They can't get out of their student loans in bankruptcy, which is outrageous. The students, the young people that we have seduced into thinking that if they got a good education that they could get a job and pay off their loans. They can't even file for bankruptcy, so they can't get out of these things. But another thing that the banks extorted in this 2005 bankruptcy law was that was the super priority of derivatives. And the theory was that this was a fledgling industry, the derivatives industry. It needed a little help, and that um, because the banks needed a little help in order to compete they were losing market share to to the other foreign banks and to um, the money markets. And General Motors, you know, would issue their own loans. Instead of going through a bank, they'd issue their own credit so that the bank's market share was shrinking. And so this was supposed to prop up their market share. Well, who else gets to go to Congress and say, we need our market share to be bolstered, and so we need some special provisions here in our favor. So that's what happened in 2005, and we're stuck with that. And that's something that should definitely be changed and quickly before we do have another big um, Wall Street collapse. Could you explain how the attempt to extract an exponentially growing interest burden from economies that at best grow literally has been responsible for repeated banking crises? 
Well, we have a mathematical problem in our whole system that all money is created by banks. It all comes through banks, including the Federal Reserve, which is obviously a bank. You could say the Treasury creates coins, so that, that would be the one exception. The way our money comes into existence today is as a loan through a bank. And invariably, every loan is at interest. So they always want more money back than they put out there. So collectively, more is always owed back than was put out. And that means in order to find that money, either you have to take it from somebody else, which means somebody's going to have to go bankrupt. Somebody won't be able to pay their loans. Or you have to expand the money supply and inflate the money supply. Or we have this whole competitive thing with other countries where we think if we can if we can sell them products, that's where we'll get the extra money. But, of course, that doesn't happen. They're selling us their products. So, so the whole system mathematically is unsound, but there is a way you could make it sound. Well, what the bank does with those profits, that's the issue. See, they get the, the interest back, and now they put them in offshore tax havens, which now has between 21 and $32 trillion in them, which is like half the global economy, or it's a, a sum equal to half the global GDP. And that's squirreled away in these accounts where... It's money that's growing, you know, it's attracting more money, but it's not building anything, it's not buying anything, it's not actually contributing to the economy. So if you had banks that were contributing to the economy, in other words, say a public banking system, um, where we owned the banks and the profits then went back to the bank, which was part of the government, and therefore the government could either use that interest, this is what happens in North Dakota, they can either use those profits to um, relieve the tax burden of the people because it's our bank, so we're getting the money back, basically, or they can leverage it into loans for the whole economy, stimulate the economy, or they can use it for their own infrastructure-type things that they would build, and they can get those interest-free, basically, because they own the banks, so they get the interest back. So there are many different ways. But the, all those things would recirculate the money into the economy and stimulate the economy, unlike what we have now. You write that 40% of banks globally are publicly owned. These are largely in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. How are these publicly owned banks doing in other countries? Would you consider them a success? They're definitely a success. The BRICs have been growing like gangbusters. I think they grew 97% over the last decade compared to 15% for Western countries. So in China, for example, has been growing at the rate of 10% on average for the last 30 years, which is unbelievable. And the research that I've looked at in this book shows that how they do it is through their public banking structure. So they direct their banks to lend into the economy. They're countercyclical, which means that if the private banks aren't lending, then they lend more or they lend into sectors that aren't otherwise getting credit. So there's great credit machines. That's what they are. They generate credit, but they put the credit in the right places. So they're, they're looking to see where the credit goes, and they make it go where it needs to go to feed and stimulate the economy and to actually depends on the country. But, for example, Japan, they put that into lifestyle things to actually improve the lifestyles of the people, quality of life. 
How do public or government-owned banks perform during economic crises? They perform better because it's their mandate to serve the local economy. And so when they see that credit has fallen off, they generate more credit. And I've got many charts and you know data just showing that this is true, that it's the public banks that have been the salvation of these countries. The BRICS all have escaped the global credit crisis. That's Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And they all have strong public banking sectors. And they have 40% of the population, and 40% of banks globally are publicly owned, so they're basically largely in the BRIC countries. And that's how they've done it. In India, for example, the um, public banks sort of lost favor with the politicians in the 1990s, where the idea was suddenly now the banks are supposed to go out there and make money and and be more profitable. But um, with the banking crisis of 2008, it was the public banks that stabilized the whole system, and and then they became very respectable again. Everybody saw that that's where their security was. Literally, that's where their security was, that it was a secure place to put your money and that it would operate for the benefit of the economy in the event of a crisis. You have a chapter on the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the little-known public financial institution that reversed the Depression and funded World War II. How did the Reconstruction Finance Corporation work? You write that the RFC was America's largest corporation and the world's biggest banking organization, yet it is virtually unknown today. Well, I think the reason it's unknown is that it's been suppressed because it actually broke the banking monopoly. Roosevelt went in there. It was Jesse Jones actually ran the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. He did a brilliant job of it. So so what they did was the Federal Reserve wasn't helping much. You, you had the uh, 1929 stock market crash, and then in 1932, Hoover set up this Reconstruction Finance Corporation, but he was using it to do what the Fed's doing today, which is basically bail out the banks, but it wasn't getting money into the real economy. Well, Roosevelt came along, and he said that they were going to experiment. You know, they were going to do whatever it took. And so he came up with all sorts of new programs. But what they did with this Reconstruction Finance Corporation um, was to sell bonds, basically, and use that money to make loans directly into the economy. The thing that the Federal Reserve is not doing today, they made loans to everybody in sight. The little tiny businesses, they all got loans to, you know, farmers and all the way up to the Bay Bridge and that kind of thing. They all got these loans from the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and the money was unlimited because what they were doing was selling bonds. So they were basically recycling the money that was sitting on the sidelines because it was a bad economy and there was no place to put it. So people would buy these bonds because they were government insured, so they were a good investment. Um, in Brazil, Lula did the same thing. with He took his development bank and made it much bigger and sold bonds into the economy and then used that money for what were called self-funding loans. So the things they tended to invest in were things where they'd get the money back. In other words, productive businesses, farms and, uh, well, like the Bay Bridge, they, they did tolls and all that sort of thing. So there were, there were ways set up where the loan would pay for itself. When the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was first set up, they were allowed to issue credit of $1.5 billion, and that was expanded to $3 billion, which doesn't sound like very much. But at the time, 
the budget was only 4.66 billion or something like that the whole federal budget so it's actually two-thirds of the budget so it's a pretty sizable chunk then but by the time they were done they had made loans of 50 billion dollars and they had just rebuilt the whole country and they turned a profit in the end they actually handed over a profit to the government they bailed out the homeowners they refinanced their loans that was when home ownership actually became doable for everyone was during during that whole new deal era when they could actually get a reasonable loan before that, you almost had to have the money before you could buy a house. But but after that, you could finance your house on reasonable terms. And, of course, the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation funded World War II, and that's why we had a leg up on everybody else. By the time we went into World War II, they'd already built all the, you know, the aircraft and the tool-making, all those things they needed to set up infrastructure for war machines i mean not that not that war is obviously not a good thing but but the uh, the infrastructure kept us going then for the next 50 years and that was all funded through this reconstruction finance corporation and the reason congress well congress didn't really have anything to say about it because you didn't need appropriations you didn't need taxes it was all run just like a private bank except it was publicly owned and therefore it was directed to things that served the public the Reconstruction Finance Corporation extended government credit, right? This is not what is being done today. I think you've mentioned that. Well, it wasn't exactly government credit. They were making loans. Yeah, well, they would make loans the same way a bank does. You know, they just make the loans first. But then to clear the checks, to get the money, they sold bonds, but they sold them to the public. They didn't They didn't borrow from the taxpayers. They didn't borrow from the Treasury. They backed their loans with money that they recirculated from the public. And it was done the same way in Brazil, and that turned Brazil around from being the world's largest debtor, I think, in 2000, to when Lula got it. He just started building all over the place and basically was just recirculating the money of savers, you know, that were afraid to put it anywhere else. Here was suddenly a safe investment that would help the economy. That's what um, Jesse Jones said about, for example, funding the Bay Bridge. He said the local investors were thrilled. You know, they Here they had something they could put their money into. They could buy these bonds. They actually made some interest off the bonds, and they were helping their local community. It was something they believed in, and it was guaranteed by the government. It was a perfectly safe investment. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Public Banking Antidote. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned a few things that could be done right now to help solve the financial crisis. For instance, like protecting depositor funds from derivative raids by repealing the super priority status of derivatives. What are a few other steps that could be taken to solve the financial crisis? Okay. Repealing the super priority of derivatives would probably be the first and most important. And um, reimposing Glass-Steagall, the act that separated investment banking from depository banks that was imposed in 1934, I think, and was repealed with the Commodities Futures Stabilization Act in uh, 2000 by um, President Clinton. That was when Alan Greenspan said that it would be good for the banks. (laughs) It would help their market share if they could basically invest with the depositor's money. 
And so that's what they're doing now is they, they use the depositors' money for investments. Um, and and the derivatives market just grew hugely since then. So that's two. Um, you could have a financial transactions tax, which they are imposing in uh, Europe, and it'll be interesting to see how it works out. But I have read that that's a little dodgy because there's some things that it would be definitely good for for killing the high-frequency program trades that are totally manipulating the market and just creaming profits at the top, which are unfair and they should be killed in some way. But it would also kill such things as uh, the way our banking system is set up right now. Uh, banks borrow overnight in order to clear their uh, checks, in order to balance their books. They borrow from other banks at a very tiny interest rate. So the rate is 0.25% for the year. So you can imagine what the rate is for one day. It's like almost nothing. And if you impose uh, a major tax on that, well, I mean, even if it's a minor tax, it's going to be enough to kill that whole trade. So if banks can't borrow from each other, that would totally end banking as we know it, which might not be a bad idea, but it would be rather sudden. (laughs) It would be like, it would be like what happened to Japan when they changed the capital requirement in 1988. That's when Japanese banks went down because suddenly they had to have 2% more capital than they had. I mean, it's maybe not a bad idea to have capital, but to change the rules suddenly is going to cripple your banks because they don't have it. So now they're not going to be able to make loans. So I'm not sure that's a great idea. Or it's got potential, but it would have to be modified so that it hit certain markets, but not other markets. But that's a possibility. But, of course, my favorite possibility, the thing that I think definitely should be done right away, is to set up public banks so that, A, we have a safe place to put our own money, guaranteed by our state. Just in, in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota is not FDIC insured. It's guaranteed by the state of North Dakota. But it's it's virtually all the state's money. That's one reason they don't bother with FDIC. I mean, it's their own money. They're insuring their own money. Almost all their deposits are the state itself. But you could set up a system where it took individual deposits. If we had our own state bank, it could guarantee the little banks. So our little banks could then flourish again, and we could have some little local banks that didn't gamble in derivatives and weren't doing risky things, little banks that we trusted. And if if their loans were guaranteed by the states, that's what the Bank of North Dakota also does. They partner with the local banks and guarantee their loans. And a public bank would be good for such things as when you have catastrophes, like they had a big flood in North Dakota, and the Bank of North Dakota is right there giving everybody loans, um, doing a moratorium on mortgages, helping to rebuild. So they really see their role as to serve the community, and they do serve the community. Whereas a private bank, you know, their mandate is to serve their shareholders and to make as much money as they can for their quarterly profits, which means necessarily that they're not going to do the thing that's best for the little people. They're going to do the thing that's best for their big investors. Well, I was just about to ask you, uh, what do you make of the fact that none of the many possible fixes for the economy are even being tried? And I guess that's one of the reasons. 
Well, the banks are in control of the economy, and they've got the most expensive lobbyists. They can afford the lobbyists. The lobbyists are always talking to the politicians. And in fact, they have that revolving door where, um, for example, Henry Paulson himself had been CEO of Goldman Sachs. So they move into government long enough to change the rules, and then they move back into their private industry. So we can't really fight Wall Street, it seems to me, but what we could do is we can still have some impact on our local governments, and that's where I think we need to have a grassroots movement to get our local governments to act. The thing about local governments or any politicians is they they need a groundswell of support. You know, they're very conservative in what they do, and they're not going to do something different unless they have big support for it. You mentioned a scenario of debit cards created with a total value of $3 trillion. A card for $10,000 is given to each of the 300 million people in the United States simply as a dividend for being alive in the 21st century when mechanization has eliminated the need for a large portion of the human labor force. What would be the effect of providing every individual with $10,000? Well, what you would do is you would put $3 trillion into the economy. According to the Federal Reserve's own figures, the economy has shrunk by $4 trillion since 2008. That's in the M3, the shadow system that you don't normally see. But, but because all these loans were called, et cetera, people are paying down their loans, there's not as much credit or debt out there, but there's also just not as much money in the money supply. And the money's not there to pay workers and to go into people's pockets. So if you gave them this dividend, let's say you only did it once, I would argue you could do it every year because it would come back to the government. If you had um, $3 trillion that changed hands, um, I think the velocity of money is supposed to be 7.5. So during the course of a year, it changes hands uh, seven times, seven and a half times. So, for example, the the butcher pays the landlord, and the landlord pays the gas man, etc. So, all these different people pay each other, and they all earn that money and pay taxes on it. And the average tax bill is twenty percent. It's actually forty percent if you look at hidden taxes. So, if you added twenty twenty percent times five. It would all go back to the government, and they could put that money out there again. I mean, you could keep doing it until you see the prices go up across the board, and then you know that you've got too much money out there, and that's when you'd have to bring it back in taxes. But not before. You don't need to bring it back to balance your books because it's not a real debt. What we call the federal debt is obviously not a real debt because we've had it since 1835. It hasn't been paid off since 1835. And it hasn't hurt anything. It really is our money supply. So if we just put the money out there and called it money instead of calling it debt, everybody would be so much more comfortable with it, except that they would think it was inflationary. But it wouldn't be. That's what I'm saying. If you understand how the whole thing works, it wouldn't be inflationary. What would a banking system that was simpler, more equitable, and more sustainable look like? How would it operate? Describe a sustainable financial system. Well, we had the perfect model, really, in Pennsylvania, the colony of Pennsylvania, in Benjamin Franklin's time. He didn't invent it, but he did write about it and uh, popularized it. 
of course, all the colonies issued their own money, but some of them just kept issuing the money and managed to inflate the money supply. But in Pennsylvania, what they had was the government owned a bank. It was called a land bank. I don't know that it had a building, but it was, you know, it was part of the government. It was this land bank where the farmers would borrow at 5% from the land bank. So the government, which had the power to print money, let's say they printed $105. And then they lent a hundred dollars at five percent, and then they would take the other five and they would spend it on roads and bridges and the things that that government does. So the other five would get out there in the economy too. So now you have a sustainable system where you've got a hundred five out there that can then go back and pay principal and interest. So the government could then lend a hundred again, spend the five, the same hundred five. You don't have to print more money. And you could do that every year, just lend the same money, it would come back, and spend the interest, and it would come back. And during the period that they did that, until King George forbade the colonies to issue their own money, um, they did not pay taxes, except I think they had a import duty on liquor, but that was the only one. And prices did not inflate, and um, they had no government debt. So it was totally sustainable. Is there an example uh, currently of a sustainable financial system? Well, there are quite a few governments that are doing it. I mean, that have parts of a sustainable system. I don't know that there is a place that's totally perfect right now. The, the island state of Guernsey, nobody knows exactly what they're doing because they're very secretive about it because they got in trouble for it. But they do issue their own money, and they haven't had a inflation problem, and they've been doing it since the early 1800s. Australia had what looked like an ideal system from 1912 to 1923 when the head of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia died suddenly and rather unexpectedly when the, when the Bank of England got quite alarmed about what he was doing. But he was just issuing the credit of the nation and just, just issuing credit and using it to build all the things that the government needed and to fund different businesses, shipping, etc. One problem was that their shipping line was competing with the, the Bank of England shipping line, and they were doing better than the Bank of England shipping line. But it was working very well for them, and the lifestyle was good. So, so we've got different examples, but they would get squelched, and that was killed by the Bank of England. And after that governor passed away, the governor of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia then the Bank of England imposed this committee that they could control, and then things weren't so good after that. New Zealand did it for a while. They had a, a man who would become the head of the Bank for International Settlements, Otto Niemeyer, who came from the Bank of England, and set up the central bank in New Zealand, intending it to be one of these private central banks on the model of the Bank of England. But the people decided to take it over. There was this big populist movement. There was a social credit movement. So they got their their man in, who then nationalized the bank and used it to generate credit for, for example, they had this housing project where they built state housing. So it was, so it was low-cost public housing, and it financed itself. So it was actually a moneymaker for the, for the state. So they just issued credit, built the thing, and then money started coming in. So they made money off it. People got low-cost housing, and they got this relief from taxes because they had this money-making machine as part of the government. 
but that whole system again was uh, suppressed by the Bank of England. So, so that's what I've traced this whole history of different models that have popped up and lasted for a while, but they always come in conflict with the private system, which has managed to apparently come out on top right now. But, but they have all the look of a of a dinosaur in its last throes. I mean, these desperate things like bail-ins. It looks to me like they can't really keep it up much longer. And even they might be relieved to have a public system that they could just move into. Ellen Brown, thank you very much. Thank you, Barney. It's great talking to you. I've been speaking with Ellen Brown. Today's show has been The Public Banking Antidote. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and the president and chairman of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System, and How We Can Break Free. Ellen Brown's new book is From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution. She is the author of many books on natural healing, as well as numerous articles on the financial system. She developed an interest in the developing world and its problems while living abroad for 11 years in Kenya, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Visit the Public Banking Institute's website at www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. And Ellen Brown's website at webofdebt.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com or faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Trying to steal your life.